Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It does seem to me that there is an honorable form of both left and right and that there is therefore an honorable form of partisan politics that actually has a real existence in our society, even at times that can't help but be very disappointing times to any citizen like the time we're living in now. Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Yuval Levin. He is a director at the American Enterprise Institute of their Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies program. He's the founding editor of the conservative journal National Affairs, and he's the author of the new book, A Time to Build. If you listen to the Nathan Robinson episode on socialism just a couple days ago, which I encourage you to do if you haven't, you heard there a lot of discussion about the ways in which socialism is on the one hand an ideology, a program for how you might rebuild a society, but in a more direct way for a lot of the people who adhere to it, it is an ethic, a mindset, even a temperament. And I've become very interested in the ways in which things that we call ideologies are often ethics or temperaments, things that we think of as a temperament might be an ideology, but sometimes those two things are pulled apart. One of the reasons I want to have you all on the show is he's the best articulator, I think, right now of what you might call the conservative mindset, the conservative ethic or temperament. And that is a very different thing and an increasingly different thing, as we talk about in this uh, conversation, from the conservative movement itself, the conservative ideology. And so I think trying to understand how those two things have diverged, the ways in which they are the same or different, it's a very important part of understanding what has happened and is happening in American politics and also what conservatism can look like versus what it does look like. But just as importantly in the other direction, why conservatism doesn't look like the thing that its adherents often claim it looks like or claim that it is. Um, the other thing here is Yuval's book is very much about institutions. My book is very much about institutions. And it's a very interesting interplay of our respective diagnoses and what I would call a little bit more my pessimism than his in here. Um, interestingly, Yuval, the conservative, is – I think much more confident about the ability of actors here to overcome what I would think of as market incentives than I am. I see the kind of context in which these institutions are operating, in some cases a capitalistic context, in other cases a political context, as much more binding. And I think he has a, a more optimistic view of that. And, and the tension in that part of the conversation is, I think, pretty illuminating and pretty helpful. A couple quick things before we jump into the discussion itself. Uh, my book, speaking of which, Why We're Polarized, is very much available for pre-order. I hope you do pre-order. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff coming up on the show, and it is going to be a lot easier to follow if you actually have the book. 
And then the other thing there is we have the tour coming up. And the first leg of the tour is in D.C. and SF and New York and Boston and Portland and Seattle. Um, yes, these are coastal cities. That is not going to be the entire tour. But for now, um, the first bit of it is built around doing media. But I've got great interlocutors in these cities, Jamal Bowie, Tanasi Coates, Anna Sale, Dave Eggers, a lot of great people from the past of the show, uh, Larry Lessig. And so I hope you guys are going to come out. You can see all the tour dates at whywerepolarized.com. We will put a link in the show notes here. But again, you can pre-order or find all the tour dates at whywearepolarized.com. All that said, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And here is Yuval Levin. Yuval Levin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, I guess back to the podcast. You've been on once before. Once before, yeah. It's a triumphant return. (laughs) (laughs) It's a return. So I wanted to begin somewhere that you begin the book, which is with what you call a conservative premise. You write that human beings are born as crooked creatures prone to waywardness and sin, that we therefore always require moral and social formation, and that such formation is what our institutions are for. Can you talk about just that premise and what makes it conservative? Yeah, you know, I think in some way that premise has been the premise of a lot of the work that I've done over the years and of several books now in different ways from different angles. I would say it's one of the ways of thinking about the distinction between left and right if you want to take the ideological or philosophical distinction seriously, which sometimes is a good idea and sometimes isn't. But conservatives tend to start from the premise that human beings are fallen creatures, whether in religious terms, literally, or simply that we start out imperfect and need to be formed before we can be free. So that the purpose of our institutions and of our politics and culture is not so much to liberate us from various forces that are trying to oppress us, but to form us into men and women who are capable of being free citizens. I think people on the left often start with the sense that human beings are born just fine, but society is structured in a way that creates power relations that are unjust and that allow the strong to oppress the weak. And what we require of our politics instead is a liberation from some of those kinds of power relations so that ultimately people have to be liberated in order to be free rather than formed in order to be free. Now, those are both true to an extent, and a lot of the times... Our politics is an argument between which of these ways of thinking about what the purpose of our institutions and our political life is uh, should prevail. But, you know, it, it means that oftentimes people on the left look at political issues and social and cultural issues as circumstances where you have an oppressor and an oppressed. Conservatives tend to look at the same issues as consisting of a party of civilization and a party of barbarism. And... A lot of the disagreements and disputes that are most heated in our politics are basically one side arguing one question, the other side arguing another question, and taking the opposition to be making a case for barbarism or for oppression, Um, when in fact, the premises are very different, and the issues could be better understood, and maybe the two sides could understand each other better if they saw a bit more of where they were coming from. When you say conservatives, who are you talking about? Because when the conservative temperament is described in this way, I find a lot to agree with in it. And then I look out and people who self-identify as conservative have like 90 percent approval for among the most wayward and prone to sin individual I have seen on the public stage ever. And so there's this dimension where the reticence and rectitude and like in intense emphasis on personal responsibility and behavior that seems to define what people call the conservative temperament. And then where the people who define themselves as conservatives have gone seem quite divergent. 
Absolutely. I, I agree with that, first of all. And I think that there is a, an incoherence in the politics of the right in this period that um, leads to a lot of problems. But I do think that there is such a thing as the right and the left, generally speaking, in our politics that do make some sense, where the right begins from the understanding that there is a lot in our in our society that needs to be protected and guarded, um, and that a lot of the challenge of politics is to protect the good we have. The left begins from the premise there is a lot that needs to be changed and overturned, and the purpose of politics is to change and overturn. And I do think that even in the Trump era, there is still this basic distinction where the right is trying to conserve something. Sometimes it is, to my taste, too much of a nostalgic conservation that tries to preserve the way of life of the middle of the 20th century rather than the institutions and principles and ideals that ought to define American life. But it, it is recognizably the right, and it is fighting a recognizable left that is trying to revolutionize our way of life in some meaningful way. Now, Trump turns all this over, over, and over, and over. There's no doubt about that. Trump is not a conservative in any way that I can imagine. And I am one of those people on the right who's very unhappy that Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, I think it's a disaster for conservatives. But that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a, as a coherent or recognizable right and left in American political life. The left wing intellectual Corey Robin wrote this book, The Reactionary Mind, and, and he made a cut in that that I think is interesting for this discussion, which is he argues that conservatism, going back to Burke, um, is a reactionary phenomenon where it is true that it's trying to preserve something, but it is trying to preserve its own power. And I think you gestured at that a second ago, that you can imagine a conservatism that is about trying to preserve certain institutions and the way they're structured, you know, from on one level, maybe markets, on another level, universities or religion or the family. And there are threads of that. And then there's a conservatism that is trying to protect or retain existing power arrangements, which can use a lot of the same language, but that I would certainly understand as much more simply one side of a power struggle than something that is trying to preserve anything that has uh, like a deep rootedness in in institutions or values or forms. Yeah, I think that book is very badly misguided about the, the, the history, the intellectual history, the political history of the right and the nature of the right in some important ways. And the simplest sense in which I disagree with it is that I don't think that even people who are engaged in a power struggle understand themselves explicitly to be engaged in a power struggle. I think that there, the, the ways that people approach politics in our society generally do consist of different understandings of what would be good for the whole of society and that there is really a disagreement about whether what would be good should begin from preserving what is good about our inheritance and building on it or should begin from overturning what is bad about our inheritance and recreating social order and, and structure and organization. I think that is the way in which the left and right have tended to understand themselves so that looking at it as simply a power struggle, it just isn't going to tell you very much about people's actual motivations and the ways in which they relate to their actions. I also think beyond that, that this is a very peculiar way to think about the intellectual tradition of the right, to think about Burke, to think about intellectual conservatism. Although, as I say, there certainly are strands in political conservatism and in the political right in the West in general, that have been much more about preserving a social order in terms of a kind of nostalgic understanding of the good life. 
that the right always has to fight with. And similarly, the left has its own problems with certain kinds of revolutionary ways of thinking about politics that can be quite destructive. So obviously, there are forms of both left and right that are their darkest selves. But I think it's important to understand people's motivations in the terms in which they themselves see them. And it does seem to me that there is a an honorable form of both left and right, and that there is therefore an honorable form of partisan politics that actually has a real existence in our society, even at times that can't help but be very disappointing times to any citizen like the time we're living in now. Help me make the cut, though, between those different types of conservatives. So you've read my book, and you know that I have this sort of long chapter about demographic reaction. And I quote people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Rush Limbaugh and others, Bill O'Reilly, making very explicit arguments that what is happening is that a white majority is being overturned. Um, Laura Ingram says, you know, this country is diversifying and none of us ever voted for that. Tucker Carlson talks about diversity is a bad thing. Um, you know, Bill O'Reilly says, like, the white establishment is being overturned. And so I don't really think it's the case that people never understand their own motivations in that way. There seem to me to be a lot of people who understand what they're trying to do is fighting for a certain power structure. But I also take your point seriously that there are a lot of people who do not see themselves as doing that. So how do you tell the difference? Like, the people who don't see themselves as doing that, what are they fighting for? What are they trying to preserve? And when do you know they haven't – like, when do you know they're on one side versus the other of that divide? I think in some ways the most important thing to understand about this moment in our politics, which is a dark moment in our politics, is that both sides each thinks the other is about to win everything. Each thinks yeah. that it is fighting for its life and that this is a fight that has to be moment to moment, second to second, because if the other side wins, then everything is over. That to me is one of the most striking things about the tenor of the contemporary right. And there's a version of it on the left. I think it's mistaken about the character of, of – about the actual reality of American political life and, and of this situation. But it is a very palpable sense of panic and alarm. And it is a sense of panic and alarm at the other party so that there are a lot of people on the right who believe that if Hillary Clinton had won the last election, uh, it would have become impossible to be a – in any meaningful way, a practicing Christian in America. I don't think that's true, but there are people who think that's true and who channel their understanding of American politics through that sense. And one way to think about what's come unhinged in our political life now is that everybody's fighting very short-term fights because they think that if they lose the immediate struggle, then they lose everything. No one is thinking about politics in terms of the day after tomorrow. And that's why there's no civility. I think civility begins from the premise that the people you disagree with are still going to be here tomorrow. So you're going to have to figure out a way to live with them. It's why we don't do well at thinking about problems that aren't immediate cataclysmic crises. And we have to persuade ourselves that those problems that have to be taken seriously are immediate cataclysmic crises, whether that's uh, the deficit or global climate change. It's why we are not very good at just worrying about things we ought to worry about without panicking about them. And I think it explains some of what you're getting at too, which is the sense on the right that feels to the people who feel it very defensive, but sounds to the people who hear them very offensive. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons why we've come to this moment of despair or existential panic in our politics. Some of these strike me as generational. There is a deep generational divide on the right. There's a different one on the left maybe. But 
there's a sense that uh, the, 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 the dominance of the older baby boomers over our cultural self-understanding now means that our entire political culture thinks of itself as uh, over the hill and uh, looks at the world as an elderly citizen. And that's a big problem for our political culture. I certainly do think that there's a demographic element to it, too. Uh, there are worries that I ultimately don't share, but that people do take seriously worries about the, the survival of our cultural self-understanding and the effects of mass immigration on the culture. And some of those definitely do go into very dark places that are just objectly racist or at least think about culture in ways that I don't think are well in line with the American tradition. I don't think that these are as dominant in driving the direction of the politics of the right as maybe you think, as certainly some people on the left think, but obviously they exist. There's no denying that. So one thing that this gets at that I'd like to, I guess, try on you as a theory is I've started to play around with the idea that temperament should be understood as a separate axis of politics and that it's actually very confusing because we typically use – we have a, a number of cases where we describe a temperament and an ideology with the same word when they can be different. And so let, let me – so like I imagine this is sort of having ideology, let's say, like on a y-axis and temperament on uh, on an x-axis. And so you can go like on ideology, like all the way from um, libertarian to socialist. I mean, obviously, you can actually go further than that, but let's just call it that in America. And then on the um, temperament axis, you can go from reactionary up to conservative, up to moderate, up to progressive, up to revolutionary. And that there are a lot of people who are better understood as combining different parts of this. So uh, I'll give a sort of direct example. I don't think Donald Trump is himself very ideologically conservative, but I think he's temperamentally reactionary. I think Joe Biden is ideologically like soft progressive, but I think he's actually temperamentally somewhat conservative. And I think Obama was in his own ways like temperamentally between moderate and progressive, even though his, his ideology was progressive. And that it's actually become quite confusing because a lot of people who fit into the conservative movement do not have what you would call conservative temperament. There are people on the progressive side who do not themselves have a progressive temperament. And that a lot of debates that seem like they're about ideology are actually about this temperament, about what you think society can bear, how fast you want to change it. Um, but we have trouble front-loading those debates and disagreements because we've actually subsumed the language for that underneath ideological language. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and I don't think it's a new problem uh, or a, a new complexity. There's always been – I've thought of it as the axis of how fast and the axis of which way. And you can look at the politics of the West since the late 18th century, at least since the French Revolution, as broken down along these kinds of lines where there is a partisan divide about which way, about what the nature of our society ought to be and how it ought to change. And there is also a divide, which is not simply a partisan divide, about how fast and what kind of change our society can take. Now, there are some natural alignments between the party that, wh whose answer to which way uh, is more conservative, is more about building on the past and being connected to the tradition, and the party whose answer to how fast is more conservative, that says change should be slow so that it doesn't break down essential social institutions and practices and doesn't break our connection with tradition. But there have always been people in the party uh, that is ideologically conservative who are actually quite radical in the sorts of changes they want. And there have always been people in the more progressive party that w ultimately wants a kind of social revolution 
who think that maybe it's best achieved in a gradual way or who just are inclined to think in terms of change in a gradual way. So I, I think our political parties have always had these tensions within them. They might be a little sharper nowadays again because of this very confusing factor of Donald Trump, who I just don't think, you know, I, I look at Trump as a as first and foremost and fundamentally a narcissist. I think he lives in a world where the only thing really in the universe is himself. And I don't take him to have much of an ideology. I certainly agree that the resentment he has at the fact that the rest of the world doesn't think as highly of him as he does uh, presents itself as a kind of reactionism. He wants to tear everything down. But I don't even think that it rises to the level of a reactionary temperament exactly. And so Trump confuses a lot of any attempt to think about politics at this point. But, you know, we shouldn't let him simply confuse us out of an understanding of the forces that are acting in our political life now, which I do think remain recognizably a debate between left and right in which each party, as you say, also has temperamental differences within it that can affect the way that it pursues what it's pursuing. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. One thing that seems true to me about politics right now is we're in an age that is a revival of ideology. Um, and I think it's for some of the same reasons that we're going to get into when we talk about the institutional analysis of your book, but that this is a period compared to, say, 2005 when I moved to Washington and began covering politics professionally as a journalist, where the underlying technologies and incentives are pushing towards more ideological differentiation. There's the re-emphasis of a more, I would call it, radical Catholic right. You have a rise of a socialist, like an actual socialist left. I mean, you can go look on Twitter and there are people who self-identify as tankies now, which is not, you know, something that you had a lot of back <laughs> in 2006. And so one thing that is happening even amidst Trump, um, I'm a little, I think he represents something more corridor politics than you do, but, but, uh, but I take your point on it even so, is I think a much more distinct collision of ideologies. And I, I just had Nathan Robinson on the show, who's the editor of Current Affairs, who just wrote a book called Why You Should Be a Socialist. And he was sort of in the reverse to you, describing a socialist ethic as, or even temperament as a sort of 
you know, he uses the, I'm going to paraphrase the the quote from Eugene Debs, you know, where there's a lower class, I'm in it, um, where there's a criminal element, I'm of it, where there's a soul in jail, I'm not free. What would you say to, like, young people living, listening to the show who've got a red rose on their Twitter and, you know, are, are inclined towards socialism? What do you think they're getting wrong or missing about conservatism? Like, how would you try to convert them back? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot in that question. I, I, I would say, first of all, that I think that it is true that we live now in a moment where much more basic questions are open than seem to be the case earlier in this century and in, this, in the last couple of decades of the 20th century as well, where we're debating some pretty fundamental things after it seemed at the end of the Cold War as though there'd been a kind of settlement around what broadly we might call liberalism. And the question now was how to make the most of it and how to govern it. We now are asking ourselves much more basic questions about how to be a just society. I think that's a good thing. Those questions are essential. But it's also important to understand that the world did not begin in 1989. There's a long tradition of asking these questions and even of our politics being framed around these questions. I find a lot of what's happening on the right very interesting, where there are really fundamental debates about whether it makes sense for conservatism to be oriented around a commitment to the market economy or a kind of libertarianism, a debate about whether instead it ought to be fundamentally grounded in social and moral commitments and religious commitments first and foremost. That is an old debate. That is a debate that has been had on the right since the beginning of the modern conservative movement in America, and that happened on the right well before that in Britain and America. It's a debate that could learn a lot from the earlier iterations of itself. I think in some way you can tell a story of the American right that is a, a series of uprisings against libertarianism. That's what was happening on the right in the 1970s, where you, you had a right down to Catholic integralists, uh, you know, in Triumph magazine and all these things that sound a lot like what we're arguing about now. Even supply-side economics actually originated as a populist reaction against libertarianism. It's a little hard to see that now because the libertarians kind of became supply-siders. But certainly then after Reaganism, both Bush Sr. and Bush Jr., uh, George W. Bush, uh, offered themselves as a kind of resistance to libertarian tendencies on the right. And here we are again now having this argument. I think it is a valuable argument to have. It's an important argument to have. I am on the side of those who say that libertarianism should not be the organizing principle of the American right. But I think it's important to understand that this is not the first time we've asked these questions. And that is part of what I would say to those younger Americans whose desire for justice drives them now to think about socialism as an organizing principle for the economic life and more than economic life of our society, that th these are questions that have been wrestled with a lot over the years. And it is at the very least worth looking into how those arguments went, how various kinds of experiments went. That's not to say that, well, look at Venezuela, you're trying to make us Venezuela. I don't think they're trying to make us Venezuela. But it seems to me that it is important to see that ultimately the arguments that we're having now are moral more than economic. They're not exactly arguments against capitalism. They're arguments about a society that puts economic questions first and foremost. And on that front, to the extent that that is the objection they raise, they have a lot of allies on the right. There are a lot of people on the right who worry that our society too often puts economics by which they mean neoliberal or whatever you want to call it, capitalism, first and foremost, and instead should think about human flourishing first and foremost, about enabling families 
to start and grow, about enabling communities to thrive, about allowing people to organize their lives around basic moral principles that they understand to be the definition of justice. So I think there is actually a fair amount of common ground between left and right on that front. But I also do think that for that kind of vision to operate, a market economy actually is the right way to organize our economic life. And so I end up disagreeing, I'm sure, with those younger Americans who are looking to socialism. But I don't think the disagreement is exactly along the lines that they might imagine, or at the very least, there's much more to learn about the lines that it would take uh, by looking at the history of these kinds of arguments. I take your point that there's a lot of debate right now that is actually about, should we put economic questions first and foremost? This, to me, is the most useful rendering of the neoliberalism debate, that it's more about a way we think about the world than even about a set of policies um, within the world. Something that I also think has become a debate is this idea that in different ways, American culture or like liberalism writ broadly as a political ideology, not left-right liberalism, but classical liberalism, Mm -hmm. have put this very deep emphasis on the individual over the collective or over the intermediating or intermediating institutions of society. And you really challenge that in the book. You write that um, people in America imagine American society as a vast open space filled with individuals when in reality America is a space filled with institutions. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that lens is different? Well, I'd put it this way. I think that the actual life of our society has always been richer and thicker than the theories it has had to explain itself. So – that we do tend to understand ourselves through liberal theories, classical liberal theories, which are very highly individualistic and not just individualistic, but thin and shallow and tend to think about the sources of legitimacy in politics through a very narrow idea of consent and tend to think about the the purpose of politics in very, very individualistic ways. While the actual life of our society has always been much more communal than that, has always been much more oriented by moral priorities and religious priorities and communal priorities than those theories would suggest. I think that the United States has always lacked a theory of itself that is actually up to the task of describing American life. And when we reach for theory in our political arguments, when we think we're reaching up and trying to philosophize about our public life, we very often actually end up reaching down to very, very shallow descriptions of what we are about that don't really capture what we are about. And a lot of what those theories miss is the significance of institutions in the life of a free society. Institutions are basically the the forms of our common life, the shapes and contours of the things we do together. They're shaped by rules and practices and habits. Some of them have a real formal uh, corporate structure like a company or a school or a hospital uh, or a university. Some of them don't have that kind of formal structure, but they're institutions like a profession or a family or uh, the rule of law. These things actually give shape to what it is that we do together in American life. And our political theories and often our social theories don't have enough of a place for what institutions do so that that's, that can be a very good thing as long as our institutions are strong and healthy because it makes us feel even more free than we really are. It makes us feel like we don't need mediation, like we can uh, experience authenticity directly as individuals. But when our institutions break down, which I think is happening now, it's very hard for us to explain that problem, to describe that problem. And so we reach for all kinds of other descriptions 
we talk about various kinds of pressures acting on our society as if that's what's causing the social crisis that we're living in in this second decade of the 21st century. And of course, those causes are real, right? Inequality and racism and uh, the, the, the philosophical breakdown of liberalism and the pressure put on our society by immigration. These things are really happening. But I think at the same time, there's also a breakdown of institutions and of our confidence in them and of their legitimacy that we don't have as clear and concise a language for in our way of talking about politics. And that seems to me to be the missing ingredient in a lot of the diagnoses of our contemporary troubles. That's really what the book is about. I want to dig into how you get to that diagnosis because you do something in the book that I think is a very important move in the book, but is also, I think, open to inquiry, which is you say that our politics tends to seek to give people what they want and what they ask for. But if they don't know what they want, if they're not asking for the right thing, which is the argument here, then our politics needs to respond in a very in a place that is very difficult to respond to because you're you know people want something and now you're trying to tell them no no it's not really what you need. So I guess the first question is if what people are asking for and what they're complaining about is not institutional breakdown, how are you sure or what leads you to that is their problem? Yeah, the way I try to get at this in the book is when someone comes to the doctor's office and complains that about fatigue. The doctor doesn't just tell them to get more sleep. The doctor will ask some questions and try to see, for example, whether maybe they lack iron, which wouldn't be obvious from the description they offer of what's bothering them, but might be part of the solution. That's what it takes to be a physician, to know the human organism and how it works. So in our politics now, there are a lot of complaints about oppressive establishments that are pressing in on us and we want to liberate ourselves from them and drain the swamp and clear the weeds and all of that. And certainly we've got to take that seriously. That's, that's a real symptom that our politics is complaining about and our populism needs somehow to be answered with, with real changes in how we govern ourselves. But we also have to ask ourselves whether there might be something else going on here, whether the lack of legitimacy of our institutions argues not just for clearing away these institutions, but for helping them gain greater legitimacy or for rebuilding our commitment to them because ultimately we need these institutions, social, cultural, and political institutions. We can't really do without them. And when we find that what our politics wants to do is blow them up, right? Our politics is just overrun now with demolition crews, people who will tell you what they want to destroy and clear away so that we can finally be free of it and finally have our own way. Part of the trouble that that raises for me is that we do need these institutions to function. We need them to have the trust of the public at some level. It's not enough to stand there and say, Congress is failing, Congress is failing, isn't Congress a disaster? It's especially not enough if you're a member of Congress and that's what you do full time, which is what a lot of members of Congress do now. We have to also think about how Congress could work and what we might do to enable it to play the function that it, that it is assigned in our system of government that's frankly an essential function for a free society. So I think we have to think about how to help our institutions function again, how to help them be worthy of our trust and, and of legitimacy again, and not just how to clear them away. And I say that's a challenge in democracy because it does mean that what, what the public wants and what the public is complaining about aren't exactly the same thing. And that means for people who have to run for office and get elected, that they somehow have to help the American public see the problem we confront in a different way and understand that maybe what we need and therefore ought to want 
isn't exactly what we're asking for now in this populist moment. So let me put this against some of the alternative explanations you'll hear from both left and right. There's a version that I think actually is on both sides, which basically says our problems are simply economic. If you could get median wages up, um, I think in the left version of this, if you could give people health care security that they don't currently have in the right version of this, I think it's something a little bit more like if you could bring back manufacturing jobs and a kind of mid-20th century economy that you used to have. But at its core, like if you could just make people's economic situation better, if more growth could be felt more broadly by more people, then there wouldn't really be anything that people are complaining about at all. And so all this talk about institutions is a little bit of a roundabout way when what you really just need is better economic policy of some sort. What's your reply to that argument? Well, look, I think that's certainly part of the problem. But I think we have lived through a kind of real-world experiment about this where it was easier to say that in the immediate wake of the Great Recession where we had very significant public unease and distemper and rising populism alongside an economy that had crashed and that was leaving a lot of people behind and making it very hard for a lot of people to thrive and prosper. Obviously, there are still people who are left behind now, but we're living with a pretty strong economy now. Uh, with very, very low, historically low unemployment, at the same time as fairly low inflation, at the same time as reasonable growth, not great, but okay. It is actually increasingly well distributed, that growth, including income growth. It's not spectacular, don't get me wrong, and I'm not saying that there aren't economic problems, but we haven't seen the improvement lead to a lowering of the temperature and the volume in our politics. We continue to see what seems like a much more than economic set of concerns about alienation and isolation. Uh, We continue to see a kind of polarization that doesn't seem like it's going to be assuaged by a stronger economy. So I, I, I certainly wouldn't say that there's not an economic element to what's going on and that better growth and lower inequality wouldn't help. But I don't think that what's what we're seeing expressed in the kind of populism and alienation and isolation and breakdown in our society is fundamentally or above all economic. I think that there's a cultural problem here that can't be ignored. And then the other version of it, which I think is probably the one I'm more of a part of and you've seen it in my book, is that we're in this era where the parties have polarized, where you've had a kind of stacking of identities such that those polarized political identities are much more different from each other, both in their composition, who's in them, and then also in what they want to do with the country. And that all this is exacerbated, as we were talking about earlier, by this tremendous era of demographic change where the country is browning rapidly, where it's been secularizing rapidly. But neither neither coalition has developed a strong hold on power. So you're just in this period where you have very different coalitions that feel very antagonistic towards each other and are in a very unstable, close contest for power. And that that is like that, like that tension is a thing people are feeling. That tension and difference is a thing they are reacting to. And that's where the problem comes. And there's not really a good answer for that problem, but just making institutions stronger it's hard to see how that would answer it or even how the institutions could get stronger in that context. So I guess, put simply, like, what is your your rebuttal to my book? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think that that's all that different from what I'm saying, but I think that it's a little bit downstream of what I'm saying. Um, So the parties have polarized strikes me as too passive. Part of what we've seen in our politics in the last few decades is what seems like polarization that is not ideological a breaking down into groups 
but not exactly a sharpening of substantive policy differences between those groups. And I think part of the reason for that is institutional. The, the, the parties, not as, not as abstract collections of people, but as actual institutions in our politics, the political parties exist to moderate this kind of polarization and extremism. Parties don't drive partisanship. They actually push against partisanship because the, the two big political parties have to run candidates all over the country. And when you have to run candidates both in Oregon and in Alabama, you're going to try to build a broad tent and try to find ways to build a broad coalition. The parties in, as institutions have been dramatically weakened and damaged by some reforms of campaign finance and by some of the changes in the political culture over the last several decades. So that now the parties, like a lot of our institutions, have gone from being formative institutions, from shaping and framing the space in which they operate, to being performative institutions. They are stages. They're just platforms where narcissists stand and talk. And that means that they don't play the role that we might hope they would play of moderating these kinds of uh, polarizing forces and building broad coalitions. You can say something like this about Congress, too. The purpose of Congress is to compel accommodation. That is the shape of the institution. Congress is not a European parliament. It's not there to enable a majority to govern while it has a majority. Congress is there to force differing sides to come to accommodation. But Congress, too, has gone from being formative of its members, from creating a certain structure for our politics, to being performative for its members. It's just a stage where you stand and complain, and mostly you complain about Congress. And that's not a way to channel that energy and deal with that polarization. So I think there are institutional forces that could help address the kind of problem you're describing. I don't think I quite disagree with what you're saying has been happening in our political life. But I think there's an institutional component to it that we're giving short shrift to. And it's important to notice it because we can actually do something about it. Uh, unlike a lot of the other problems, it's very hard to change. We can reform our institutions in ways that try to manage the incentives that drive this larger process. In some ways, I think our tension is which explanation is downstream of which. The performative versus formative, I think, is the key idea of the book. And, and you argue across a bunch of institutions that things that were once formative and that they shaped how their members act have become performative in which they're now platforms in which to display how their members act. And that creates kind of incentives for a certain type of behavior. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, I look at that and I say that that is a downstream effect of some of these other big um, conditions, both both technological and ideological and, and demographic in, sure. in American life. And, and a good example here is Congress. So I look at Congress, and it is true that Congress has become much more performative. And the names we know from it are certainly the most performative, you know, and, uh, and, and the best at doing public leadership proposals, right? So an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one, right? Like there's true players of this era who understand the performative nature of it and have really been able to leverage that. But if I look behind them for the people whose names I can't even call up now, the 10th highest ranking member on the Ways and Means Committee, or even if you go at the top of that, somebody like Richard Neal mm -hmm. or Greg Walden, names that I think most of our, most of my listeners will not know, even though they're very, very powerful, they vote the same way. Right. You don't see a huge difference in the way they conduct their daily business from the much more performative members that the choices are faced with are the same. They're, you know, wrapped in the same impeachment dramas and debates. Uh, you know, I think this is probably true in journalism, too. 
And so, like, I feel like what would be predicted by this argument is that the people who are less performative are much more collaborative or are more popular in some way. But I don't really see that. I see them sort of all acting much more like each other than different. Yeah, but that that's part of what it means to say that this is an institutional problem. So I, I don't think that those people who are less performative have much of an alternative. The, the, the institutional incentives they confront now, because of the way Congress has changed since the 90s, because of the way campaign finance has changed, but also because of, of very powerful cultural forces that obviously shouldn't be ignored that push in this direction, mean that... The agenda is set in a way that advances the performative function of the institution. There's not a lot of room to be a traditional legislator in Congress now, but there are ways of changing the rules and of changing the institution if that were the goal, if that were the purpose of people in Congress to allow for more of that to happen. There are ways of changing the budget process that would give House members lots more to do, lots more to own, lots more to be part of as legislators. And so would invest more of their ambition in the kind of work they're supposed to be doing than in putting on a show for a cable news audience or a Twitter audience. And I, I think when we see the problem as having to do with institutions, and to be clear, I don't think it's just institutions, and I, I don't think I even disagree with the description that you offer of the other trends, but I think that the, the institutional piece of this is too easily overlooked and also offers us a way in, a way to make a change, to try to push back. Because otherwise, you're just you're just stuck saying, well, our entire culture has to change. And until that happens, we're screwed. Well, that's not going to work. Uh, what can we do? What can I do? What can you do? What can the person in Congress who does think that this is a mess do? When we think institutionally, there are some ways for us to make a difference. Hey, I never promised an answer here. Yeah. I, a, I, I, feel, I feel very grim about things. Um, I feel pretty, pretty darn grim about things, too. But I think that... This is this is by no means the the biggest form of the biggest version of this kind of problem that our country has faced. I think that we've seen in the past sure. ages of institutional reform that have responded to these kinds of problems. And I think we could see one again. So the the push I would make on this, and I want to be careful here because in arguing this, I actually don't want to take away from its power. Um, I will say that the distinction that people prefer in some collective way over time institutions that restrain and shape their members in certain ways, I think is correct. And it made me think a lot about journalism, which is in many ways the institution said, I know best. And on the one hand, I don't think there is any doubt that trust in journalism, that journalist authority, that even sort of who we are and what we do has been hurt by how much more performative journalism has become. And by the way, I'm somebody who's benefited very greatly from that performativeness. I came in through a side door. I came in having made a name for myself in blogging. I have millions of Twitter followers. I have a show named after me that you're currently on, right? The, the sense in which journalism has become a platform is something that certainly I and others have um, you know, been raised up by and, and exploited. And on the other hand, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, back when the whole thing was more institutional and protected and less transparent and you didn't know what every New York Times reporter thought on Twitter, that there was at least more space to believe the best about it or to sort of like push yourself into believing that it was an institution talking. I always think about how before I actually entered journalism, I never read bylines. If I read a mm -hmm. New York Times article, it was the New York Times that wrote it. I mean, yes, I knew humans had written it, but I didn't care. Their names didn't mean anything to me. On the other hand, um, as so 
I think there's a lot of power in that. And when I think about Vox, for instance, I think about like what would it have meant or what even does it mean? In which ways did we or did we not create an internal institution that shapes people? And I think in some ways towards explanatory work we did and then in some ways towards sort of, you know, like Twitter performance and other things we didn't. That said, I know from having butted up against this and tried to push on it that what people are responding to there is not like in some ways I would say to something you said earlier – institutions have broken down as too passive. That what happened is that everybody is responding to incentives. The organizations are responding to the move from monopolistic business models to being in an, in an all-out war for the attention of an audience that has a billion other choices at every single moment of the day. The individual journalists know that where they are making their careers in many ways, certainly among each other, which is oftentimes the um, question that matters most for what your next job might look like, is on Twitter, uh, among other things. And so even if you think it's bad, like what is – it ends up being a real collective action problem that what is rational for every individual actor and even outlet to do is maybe not rational for the collective over time. That seems to me to be true with a lot of the different institutions here, but it's not something that I think can actually be fixed just through individual recommitment. There's something about the overall incentive structure and I would argue um, both the sort of economic models we've transitioned to in a lot of these areas and much more so the attentional models mediated by social media and other kinds of technologies that are behind this. Well, I think that's true. But th th that's one reason to write a book like the book I've written here, which is I, I think if we articulate the problem in these terms, then we're more likely to see a reason to try to change these incentives where we can. Now, there are going to be limits to where we can do that. But those limits aren't at zero. There are changes we can make. So I, I think w when it comes to journalism, the, the, and this is really journalism can stand in as an example for professions in general, which professions are very vital institutions in our society. They're often guardians of specialized knowledge. They're, they're possessors of authority. They, they provide legitimacy to experts. And one of, the, one of the enormous problems we have in our society now is a loss of that legitimacy of expertise. And one of the reasons it's happening is that I do think some important professions are giving up on their responsibility to mediate and, and serve as guardians of that legitimacy. And you can really see that in journalism. Journalism, a little bit like science, makes people proud of their own humility. It creates a set of norms where people say with pride, I'm not sure. This is what I know. This is how far I know it. I've tested it in the ways that we test these kinds of things. And to the best of my ability to say, these are the facts. That is an enormously powerful thing to be able to say. And to get to the point where that is what you take pride in and where that is what people trust and consider legitimate takes an enormous institutional undertaking, cultural, social undertaking. And I think at this point, journalism, or at least political journalism, is basically taking that very hard-earned legitimacy and throwing it in the garbage day after day by allowing journalists to stand outside that process and just be visible directly in an unmediated way expressing their opinions. The New York Times absolutely should not allow its employees to be on Twitter. It just shouldn't. There is no better way to shred its authority, its legitimacy, its capacity to be trusted than allowing them to do that. And obviously, there are strong incentives to let them do that. But are they that strong? I think if you see what the costs are and really come to terms with them, including in these institutional terms that I'm trying to lay out in the book, ultimately, the cost of that is much greater than the benefit that they get by being on Twitter 
And I just think it was this wasn't obvious to begin with. It should be obvious now. It's one of the things we should have learned from the last few years. And the importance, the value of the authority of the professions is such that it is now time for them to take this seriously and take some steps to push back. These are always matters of balance, right? I, I don't think that um, that these are yes or no questions. I don't think that there should be no way into journalism except through a few little tiny doors where you have to get the degree in just the right place and that's the only way to do it. That's not right either. But we've gone too far in the other direction where there's simply no difference between standing in the street and yelling and being a reporter at a major news outlet because you spend most of your time basically standing in the street and yelling anyway. That's gone too far in a direction that has to be resisted. And I think to see that might be to help some of these institutions get the get the the courage to resist it. This is a place – there are a couple of different directions I want to go from this. One is this is a place where the market is very destructive and disruptive to, I think, a more conservative understanding of the world. And there's a, a, a deep tension in that. I mean, when you talk about that particular tension in journalism – a lot of that is coming from the market. Look, I, I ran a newsroom for years. I know the other people who run newsrooms or a lot of them. I have been in conversations and I have both given the presentation myself and I know about other people giving the presentation at almost every newsroom I know of, of like, stop fucking tweeting like that. Mm -hmm. And then the question comes to you, do you fire this person for having tweeted like that? The question comes, should you, can, can you ban everyone? Well, what if you then lose your talent to the other people not only lose your talent, but you're trying to get eyeballs, you're trying to get attention, you're trying to survive at a time when it's very hard in that business to survive. And so seeding one of the central attention spaces in a business of attention getting to all of your competitors simultaneously just doesn't work, right? Like you can run the numbers yourself and stare at it and like like drive yourself crazy over it. And to some degree I did. Um, and I know other people do. But the reason everybody ends up making the same decision here, and maybe they're wrong, but is that without the security of a really strong business model or some other really strong grounding, your power weakens, right? You're, you just become much more buffeted by the market. And I think you can look at this in different ways. I think in many ways, um, politics itself has become more sort of quote unquote efficient. There are more primary challenges. There's a lot more information. Parties themselves, as you said, I don't really buy the um, financing argument for why they've become so much weaker. I think it does a lot more to do with information. But nevertheless, they've become a lot weaker. And so in this sort of age of weakness, their ability to like bring people into heel, say stop doing this thing. It is maybe rational for you, but irrational for the collective weakens. And so – this is one way in which the more we make things efficient, the more we like drive down the profits to nothing, the more we make sure everybody knows everything, the less actual power institutions have. I've begun to think of a lot of the things that used to look to me like inefficiencies as being space in the system where judgment could act. But the more we grind out inefficiency, the more it just turns out you weaken any player who is not sort of directly, immediately responsive to short-term interests. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's not just the market, right? I mean, you mentioned it yourself in talking about politics. There's an idea that mediation is inefficient on the one hand in economic terms, or mediation is inauthentic in more political, cultural terms. And in a lot of ways, what I'm defending here is mediation. That's what institutions do. And mediation is essential. Now, again, it's a matter of degree, and they can go too far. But it is enormously important that we see 
that there is a deep need for integrity in a free society. And I actually think at some level, there is also a market for integrity. Certainly in journalism, there's some market for integrity. Now, I don't know that that market is going to be enough to create business opportunities that will overwhelm the incentives to drive people to Twitter. But I think that there is a lot of dissatisfaction now with the status quo. And that seems to me to be something to work with. We have to ask ourselves, what is it we're unhappy about here? Why does the public not have confidence in the media? And there are ways to make things better. They don't have to be dramatic, absolute changes uh, that overturn everything. But I think we have to think about what direction we ought to be pushing in. And the direction we ought to be pushing in seems to me to be mediation. Now, some of these are going to be very difficult. I make the argument in the book against excessive transparency in Congress, for example. And good luck making that argument. I've, I, you know, the, the, the idea that committee work would be much more effective if it were not televised strikes me as obviously true and impossible to articulate by a politician. Uh, if you talk to members of Congress who are on the Senate Intelligence Committee, for example, they all say that's their favorite committee. They love the work they do there. And the reason is basically that they can talk to each other and Republicans can talk to Democrats and they, they're not on television constantly so that they don't constantly have to be putting on a partisan performance. And so my answer to that is, well, maybe the Finance Committee should work that way. I think it would work better, but it is a very, very tough case to make because the assumption in our political life is that absolute transparency is always good. Congress is an institution that exists to bargain, and bargaining is impossible to do in public. Yeah, this is a catch-22 in a way that particularly the more these institutions weaken, the less authority and power they have to change direction. Exactly. I think a very good example of this is actually political parties and primaries. So in 2016, you have – I think a very clear example of why it is you might have wanted to have party elites exerting at least some level of gatekeeper control on your party, which is to say that I think in another context and certainly in the party convention smoke-filled room context, Donald Trump never has even a shot of winning the primary, right? right. There's, it's, yes. not, it's not unknown in American or political history that demagogues can win, um, can, can, can amass popular support. But that's one reason we built institutions where popular support was not the only way to come through and certainly not unrepresentative kinds of popular support. But at the exact same time that happened, what you saw on the other side, right, and particularly Democrats looking at the Republican primary would probably be the best position to say, oh, we don't want that to happen to us. What they did because they were – because there's a lot of anger from the Bernie Sanders wing about what had happened in the primary, though Bernie Sanders did not win either – like Bernie Sanders was not stopped by superdelegates. Hillary Clinton won both more regular primaries and regular delegates. But they weakened their superdelegates. So now superdelegates can only act on the second ballot. And so to me that – what that shows you is that even if parties wanted to intervene – they don't have the public authority, the legitimacy to intervene. I think it's understood that what happened there isn't that the superdelegates really got weakened. It's that the party is already so weak, the superdelegates couldn't even be used, at least not on a first ballot way that people would feel took something away from them. And so there's this way in which you like have a circular problem of the institutions need more trust to be able to make the decisions that, at least in this analysis, would allow them to be more trusted. But by not having that trust, they don't really have a shot at making those decisions. Yeah, I, I think that's true up to a point. The parties, you know, the parties aren't public institutions. They they don't need everybody's assent to make these kinds of changes. And the parties have incredible leverage that they don't use, they're barely aware of. Each of our two parties owns a banner 
that gives its possessor the right to 45% of the vote in the presidential race. Just being the Republican candidate means you start at 45% on election day. That is a huge source of power and leverage. And it is also a huge source of, a, 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 it ought to be an object of responsibility. The, the Republican Party should have been much more concerned about the fact that it held in its hands 45% of the vote on election day and should have thought about what that meant and required of it in the process of uh, nominating a presidential candidate. There was a massive collective action problem in 2016 where there were people the entire time, all the way through, standing on the side screaming, what can we do about this? We've got to stop this. And those were the people who would have had to do something about it. And they understood themselves as outsiders rather than insiders. And I think this is another way of describing the same problem. A lot of people in our institutions want to behave as though they're outsiders without power rather than acting like insiders with responsibility. This is what, I mean, when you see President Trump tweeting, complaining about the Department of Justice, the reaction we all should have is, well, the Department of Justice works for you. You should resolve this with a phone call and not stand outside as if you're a commentator. Maybe it's a good thing that he doesn't seem to know that or be capable of doing that. But Donald Trump wants to be an outsider. That's the source of his power. A lot of members of Congress want to behave like outsiders. And I think the people who have some power in our parties also wanted to see themselves as outsiders commenting on events rather than take themselves to be the people with responsibility to actually stand up and do something. I think they have more power than they think. It's not that it would have been easy. It's not that it would have been simple. And there certainly would have been real challenges of legitimacy in anything that they tried to do to take some control of the nominating process back. But what really are these two parties if they're just platforms for people to see who can gain the most attention and get the most uh, free press and by that get access to 45% of the vote? I don't think it makes any sense for the Republican or Democratic parties to understand their roles this way. They have a real responsibility in our system. But that that exactly is it. I mean, maybe this is where I am somehow more conservative and pessimistic in a way, but that I think you just described to a large extent what the parties are, have become. I think a theme here, and you mentioned that you take it on directly in the book, is the role of transparency. And something that I would say, I've, I guess, kind of made this argument so far in, the, in, in our conversation, but that the way transparency is moved is not simply an ideological phenomenon, but a technological one. Yes. That we keep building technologies that make things more transparent. That once you had television cameras, it was only a matter of time before they came into Congress. Once you had the internet and social media in particular, it's only a matter of time before everybody moves on to that and all the politicians are there. And, you know, Donald Trump, I think, I don't think Twitter is exactly why he won, but I don't think he wins without Twitter. I think he needed that sort of alternative communications medium to, to control the traditional media in the way he was able to do. And so I think that was one of the places where I had the most trouble imagining how we implement some of the approaches in your book, because I think the technology is sort of only going one way. It's only going towards more information delivered faster and in ever more vivid constructions, such that everything just becomes more and more transparent. But, you know, as you say, that our institutions aren't necessarily worse than they are, but you can really see the ways in which they maybe were always bad, and then they become worse than they were. I think this is too fatalistic. Uh, we're, we're not simply at the mercy of these technologies. They're new, and so we are not television, but some of them are new, and we're learning to live with them. And over time, we learn to live with them in ways that are gradually more constructive. 
Um, I so it, it seems to me that we we can't simply say, well, the technology's there, and so this is going to happen. We have to ask ourselves, what should the rules be, and what should the norms be, and how should we behave given that this technology is here? Uh, one example that I use in the book is to, in thinking about journalism in particular. Uh, is to look at the political journalism of the early republic in America, which was a lot like, in some ways, a lot like 21st century American political life, where, again, there was there were very low barriers to entry for, to, to journalism. Basically, anybody could could sort of start a, uh, a, a newspaper in, in one of our major cities. At the beginning of the American Republic, you see partisan newspapers pop up to basically convey partisan news and make the case that the, that one party or the other wanted made. It was very, very hard to tell what to trust and what was really going on. Conspiracy theories, I mean, we think it's bad now. It was much worse in, in, in the late 18th, early 19th century in American politics. The kinds of things that were, that were said and widely believed about what was happening in our politics. And over time, American political journalism actually did change in ways that, that pushed against this some, that professionalized some. Uh, and that mediated some. It didn't change entirely, and these problems didn't go away, but they became less bad. And I do think that it's possible for us to think about ways that that might happen again, because in part, I think there is a market for that. And in any case, there's a need for it. And so it's incumbent upon us to try to find ways to use these technologies more responsibly. There's nothing inevitable about our politics drifting onto Twitter in the way that it has. It's entirely imaginable that it could sort of drift back out of it because a lot of people who spend all day on Twitter basically don't like it and find it disgusting and despicable. And, you know, there is a collective action problem, but there's also such a thing as collective action and recognizing the nature of the problems we face could help us see our way to, again, changing the balance, not fundamentally transforming our way of life here but pushing back a little bit against the worst excesses that make our politics so intolerable just now. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. 
grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So give me some of the um, more optimistic version of where things go from here. Like, tell me a story that for you <laughs> leads to, I don't want to say like utopia, but some level of institutional renewal. Like, what are some of the decisions get, that get made or policies that get passed that just lead to some of this getting sort of back on a better track? Right. So there's no utopia. I'm a conservative. There's not even optimism. There's hope. I am hopeful. And the difference between hope and optimism is that I don't just expect that things will turn better, but I think they could with some effort. And at the center of that, from my point of view, is what I take to be the great unasked question in our public life now. The question is, given my role here, how should I behave? Given that I am, say, a journalist or a politician uh, or the principal of this school or uh, a military officer or just or a parent, uh, a member of the PTA, given that, what should I do in this situation? That's a question that I bet that the people who you most respect in your life seem to ask that question at moments of decision. And the people who most drive you crazy in American life now seem like they never asked that question. And everything they do makes it clear that they didn't ask that question first. I think each of us can start by asking that question because each of us has some role in some institution. And we each find ourselves in places where there's an easy way, but there's also a responsible way. And we could do a little bit better at pursuing the responsible way. That's one cheesy way to start. There are also institutional reforms that could make a real difference. We've talked about some of that. We've talked about Congress, for example. I find that members of Congress, I spent a lot of time with Republican members of Congress in particular. I wouldn't say I recommend that to anybody, but it is, it's certainly a way to learn a lot about what's happening in our institutions now. And members of Congress are not happy with the status quo. They are, I think, open to persuasion about how things might change. Now, they're under some very intense incentives and pressures, but I think there is a way to think about how to change Congress in ways that would make it more tolerable and enjoyable to its own members, and that would make the work of legislation, which is fundamentally a work of compromise and accommodation, uh, a little bit more appealing. And I also think there is a significant portion of the electorate that would find that more appealing so that there ought to be ways around some of the incentives that they confront. These are all going to be small steps. I don't think that there's a, there's a version of this story that looks like a social revolution. Uh, and maybe that's because I am a conservative, but it seems to me also because of the nature of the problems we face. These need to be small incremental steps that arise out of the realization that there is a problem here, that at the heart of the problem is irresponsibility and that the solution to irresponsibility is responsibility and not exercised by other people, but by you and me and, and, and everybody else. Um, and that's, that means that solutions will be hard, but it also is a reason for hope because it means that we don't have to persuade everybody before anything can happen. We can persuade people one by one. And that's the purpose of a book like this. I, it's funny. I think Congress is, is in some ways the best example here. I spent a lot of time with members of Congress as well for my sins, and I came to believe over time that it was one of the worst ways of learning about Congress, that you you learned a lot, but mostly you learned rationalization. And what I would hear, and you and I have had this conversation before, but I, I'll listen to these members of Congress and I will think, well, okay, why don't you change this job you hate so much? If you don't like how any of it works, like, why not do it differently? Um, it would not be that difficult 
for ad hoc coalitions in the House and Senate to bring bills to the floor. Like, this is a point that people like James Walner make and, and others, but if people wanted to disrupt Congress so that, you know, Michael Bennett and Mitt Romney just came out with a very good, I think, um, basic income for children bill. Like, it is one like a, it is a bipartisan tax bill that is like the first like really good piece of bipartisan tax legislation I've seen in a minute. And the two of them have plenty of possibilities for leverage, like if they wanted to force a vote on that bill. Um, I expect they will not. I, I think it is great. With the, I do not want to put them under the microscope because here they are doing something good. But there's a lot of things that come up like that where I look at it and I think, well, why don't you just force it? I mean, we saw how few members of the House it took to basically force John Boehner out of speakership. You did not need more than a couple dozen Tea Partiers to keep calling the question on him. And there are ways to do um, discharge petitions and other things. There's a lot of going along to get along in Congress. Um, the amount of time members of Congress spend complaining about raising money, well, they could change it. Um, they could change how that works. And they don't in part because they, you know, benefit from some of it, in part because they're worried about what will happen if they stay out of line. But it is like it is very hard listening to them to at least hold my belief in members of Congress as individual actors because they end up they sound like individuals when you talk to them and then they act like automatons when they turn away from you. <laughs> they act as like <laughs> expressions of party and forces. And maybe I've just overabsorbed that lesson. That's why my book is so much about institutional forces as shaping yeah. individual decision making. But it's just made me very pessimistic. Like nothing will make you more optimistic about the possibility for change than talking to some members of Congress about how much they hate how things are. And then nothing will make you less optimistic about it as seeing what happens after you walk away from that conversation. Well, I I I think I would temper that a little bit with with some patience and some history. I I I worked on Capitol Hill in the in the late 1990s, which in some ways was a completely different world. Um, one of the striking things to me about members now is actually just how few of them were there then, and have seen any form of Congress other than this one, so that. The, the the point you make, which I think is right, that they could change it, is not actually obvious to them a lot of the time. I think it genuinely isn't. The idea – so part of what I've been doing with a small group of people with members on the right is talking to them lately about the 1946 reforms of the House and Senate, which were very dramatic fundamental reforms of the committee system, of the budget process, basically intended to rebalance the relationship between Congress and the president where Congress got tired of just being pushed around by, by strong presidents. And the members at that point just did that because they could, and you could do it now. You could change the budget process now very easily. You could, you could recreate it from scratch. Well, not very easily. You need majorities. But the, the idea that you even could is not top of mind for a lot of members. I think they take the present, the status quo, to be the default and therefore to be the only imaginable way for this institution to work. And they try to work within those boundaries. The idea that institutional reform is possible, the idea that it's possible by simple majority votes is not an obvious fact to these folks. And I think that's part of the, of, of the, uh, of the dynamic that you describe. It's also the case that these things take time. I think you have to be dissatisfied for a long time before you really take action. And you have to be dissatisfied through some series of changes, particularly changes in leadership in Congress. Leadership has been pretty stable in Congress for a while, unusually so. And so I, I don't think that we've seen, for example, what the next generation of Republican leadership in the Senate 
could involve. If you think about the members who that leadership might consist of, who are now in their 40s, say, there are a lot of Republican senators in their 40s, early 50s. Um, those people are very dissatisfied with this situation. They're generally aware of some of the dynamics and forces that we're talking about, and they might be inclined to do things pretty differently. I, I think there are some people with that kind of mindset among Democrats, too, and the dissatisfaction is just something to work with. So, uh, you know, I think change takes time, but that time can't just be spent waiting. It has to be spent filling the space with the premise that change is possible. And that's that's part of what I'm trying to do here. There is a, an optimistic point that I'll agree with, which is if I'm trying to see how things are different, it isn't because I think that you can just draw a linear line from what's going on right now to everything being a lot better. It is that I think a lot of change is generational, that things that seem to be slow efforts of persuasion actually really aren't. They're cohort replacement. And the next cohort believes something very different or grew up in something very different. And I think you see it among young people on the left. I think you see it in different ways among young people on the right. I think you're right that a lot of um, pretty younger members of the right in the Senate are clearly coming out of a very different milieu. And I think that's true among young members of the left in the House. Um, so like, there is something that is clearly going to be different when these groups take more power. Uh, whether it'll be different for better or worse, I think we're, we're going to have to see. Um, that That's the other insight, but it could change. That is a very, very important dynamic in our politics right now. You know, Donald Trump was born in June of 1946. George W. Bush was born in July of 1946. And Bill Clinton was born in August of 1946. And a lot of the people who are in power in our politics were born within a few months, a few years of that very peculiar moment in American history. The older baby boomers have exercised a lot of power for a long time, and they have certain views of things, certain expectations, certain default assumptions. Uh, we should not underestimate the significance of generational change uh, in our politics. And the on the right, as you say, it, it's very, very evident among members of Congress in general, but especially in the Senate, where there is a generation that is just not as much in awe of Reaganism as the boomers are, and it thinks differently about the circumstances of the country, and then in some ways is a lot more at home in 21st century America than, than the president and the Fox News viewer. The median age of Fox News viewers last year was 68, the median age. So I, I think there is a very, very important generational factor here that will make a difference. It, it's impossible for me at least to say exactly how, but I think we shouldn't assume, as you say, a straight line. I think it's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you what's all our closing question, which is, what are three books you've read that you would recommend to the audience? Well, my inclination is to go for classics. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure that these aren't exactly the same three books that I recommended last time I was on, which was a few years ago. Uh, it, it would sort of be neat if they are, actually. But I, I would say everybody needs to read Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville's very famous and familiar classic, which is probably less familiar than people imagine and full of a lot of wisdom about our kind of situation, our kind of time. Uh, a second book I'd recommend is called The Quest for Community. It was written by uh, a, a, a mid-20th century sociologist uh, who um, made an argument that we now would associate with our own time and that we now think wouldn't have actually been true in the 50s. He wrote it in 1953. Um, and makes a case about the importance of community in a free society, in an individualistic society, 
that is just enormously consequential and relevant to our time now. My my book, my new book, is full of quotes uh, from Robert Nisbet, this the, the author of the Quest for Community, because it's impossible to read that book and not think that it is about 21st century America that was born in 1953. Uh, it was written in 1953. Very highly recommended. The third is probably the book that shaped me most as I started to think about politics in my uh, late teens, early 20s, and that's a book by George F. Will called Statecraft is Soulcraft, um, a book that is really about the ways in which politics is unavoidably formative and that seeing that can help you make sense of some very complicated social and political questions. Um, an enormously important book to me, a short book made of, of basically what were a few lectures um, and again, very highly recommended. Yuval Levin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Yuval for being here. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, his book, again, is A Time to Build. Thank you to all of you for being here. Again, my book is Why We're Polarized. You should pre-order it if you haven't already. You should check out the tour dates um, if you think you might like to come to one of the events at whywerepolarized.com. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show as a Vox Media podcast production. And you can contact me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Hold up. 